Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do here is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal how, whether you like it or not, there's some history lurking just beneath the surface. And what we're doing this time around is I'm taking my semi-regular dip into Warhammer. You should have seen that come up, obviously, as the title of this particular episode and Warhammer and Lost Technology. And where will this take us? Well, it'll actually end up taking us to the oldest folklore story in the world. Once upon a time in a faraway land. It's about six thousand years old and it'll also take us to the medieval middle east and also to medieval greece known as the byzantine empire as well as other places too right so why am i talking about lost technology lost civilization with the world of warhammer well, one of the great things about Warhammer is that it's not like Star Wars or Star Trek. There's a lot of sci-fi stuff out there, high sci-fi, you know, Dune, Foundation, Star Wars, Star Trek. The list goes on a fair bit, particularly when we go into actual books and literature rather than just TV shows, because funnily enough, as soon as you've got sci-fi, it gets expensive. So the thing is that all of these have in common is the fact that there's this technology we could barely dream of. Think of, in Star Trek, the idea of teleportation. Scotty, beat me up. We can do that today with photons of light, and that's about it. We also have replicators as well. You know, they can just stand there and go, dry martini, Earl Grey hot. I think that was the line used by Jean-Luc Picard all the time. Tea Earl Grey hot. And, you know, poof, it appears. That just doesn't exist nowadays. So when you're looking at hyperspace in Star Wars and all these other things, there's this element of, well, this is what's called science fiction. We don't know actually how the warp engines of any of these things work. And they are clearly living in a universe where they have technology beyond our wildest imagination. As Arthur C. Clarke said, any technology advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic. And indeed, if I was to show somebody from 1300 an iPhone today, they would go, huh? Hmm? Probably then burn the witch. But anyway, and I'll actually come back to iPhones in a little bit. But the thing is that uh, a number of people have said that 
really Warhammer isn't science fiction. It's more science fantasy. And what do I mean by that? In the sense that, you know, it has demons, it has wizards called psychers, but they are casting, in essence, magic spells. The whole concept of Warhammer 40,000 was started by the Warhammer fantasy side of things. So they really just took what they already knew and gave them laser guns. Basically, I know I've just angered a lot of fanboys out there, but, you know, there's no doubt where the DNA comes from. So going into the lore, L-O-R-E, of the world of Warhammer 40,000, one of the things I've always loved about it is that everything isn't gleaming and clean and science fiction-y like you would get in something like Star Wars. May the force be with you. Instead, it's dirty. And particularly, this came more and more as I was first in the game in the 1980s. So it, I'm going to say it was always there, but it became more obvious and pronounced as people became more confident with the setting of Warhammer 40,000, so that it really started becoming more and more of a thing once I was starting to leave the actual game in back in the 80s, early 90s, and then got on with the rest of my life. So for example, the Adeptus Mechanicus. I will now explain what they are. So we have to go way, way before Warhammer 40,000. We have the Emperor of Mankind. He basically unifies the whole of planet Earth, Terra, underneath his banner. And he then talks to the tech priests of Mars. Is there life on Mars? This is why there's the two-headed eagle of the Imperium. You have one for the Emperor and one for the Adeptus Mechanicus because they were allowed to be semi-autonomous. In essence, the Emperor isn't going to start a war with them. They got all the best kit. But at the same time, they really do need the protection of the Empire, ultimately. So it's kind of a an uneasy alliance, a symbiotic relationship. Take what you will from it. But the thing about the, as I've just said, tech priests, is they're, they're weird. And so they existed when I was first in the game, but they didn't have an army or anything like that. Whereas... Last year, during lockdowns, etc., I spent the entire year building and converting an entire ad mech army, as they're sort of nicknamed. And, you know, so you can get wonderful machines and all these kind of different types of troops and even robots that they've got. It's really fun army to play with, okay? But the thing is, they, as it says, tech priest. So they are humans but they think that the flesh is weak and therefore they're constantly upgrading themselves. I mean, literally like lopping their legs off and, and adding big metal legs which run faster and never tire and things like that makes complete sense. And hardly any of them actually have faces. They've sort of got like these big lenses where their eyes should be and sort of breathing masks and apparatus. So they kind of look like robots, but there is a core of humanity in there and there's definitely a brain rather than an AI. So that's, they definitely got the tech, but a lot of the technology over the millennia has kind of been forgotten. And so they are now praying when, I mean, literally, we do it. When something breaks, we might hit it with a hammer or swear at it or, or mutter a little curse or prayer under our breath. They are literally, you know, their manuals are part, you know, an actual guide to circuitry and mechanics and part religious indoctrination. The tank's broken, 
quick burn some incense would be something that they literally do. I, I love this as an idea. And how did this happen? Because there was a period up to about 20,000 AD, you know, Warhammer 40,000 is in the 41st millennium, so around about 20,000 AD, that's the peak of humanity. We've spread everywhere. We have all the shiny spaceships that you would get in Star Trek and Star Wars. And the technology has sort of grown to an exponential level. But the reason why I said there's definitely no AI under all of this is because there then seems to have been a war between the Iron Men or Men of Metal and humanity. It becomes the dark times, the dark ages. And basically, it seems that the technology has become so high tech and self-aware, it turns on humanity. There's a massive civil war. And basically, we kind of take a few steps backwards. However, even then, there is still a period of improvement of technology, maybe not back up to the all-time height, when we come to the Horus Heresy round about the 30th millennium. On one of the other Warhammer episodes, I talked at length about the whole Horus Heresy. Not going to go into that. But basically, this was a time of the absolute peak of the Emperor's powers. But then there is a civil war amongst the different Space Marine legions. And indeed, between the Emperor and one of his Primarchs, one of his sort of chosen genetic sons called Horus. Hence why it's called the Horus Heresy. And it sets the Imperium back irrevocably. So what happens is there is actually a game around the Horus Heresy. And what I find a little bit annoying, and I know I'm not the only one, is that there are some very cool bits of kit and equipment for the Horus Heresy that you simply can't use in Warhammer 40,000. You're going to turn around and go, well, hang on, that's in the future. Surely they're going to have even better stuff. No, is <laughs> a simple answer. You're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. Because people have forgotten that technology, because there's been all the damage of the war and the death of various geniuses and things like that, all of which there are echoes of in history, by the way, then they, basically some of this stuff has become lost technology. And so I understand the logic of that, but let's face it, the Forge World kits for the Horus Heresy are really expensive, so I kind of like to use it in two games. I don't play Horus Heresy because it's a really complicated version of Warhammer 40,000. If that's what you do, great for you. The other problem is it's only around the Civil War. So you can't play as Orcs or Eldar and some of the other alien races for various reasons to do with the L-O-R-E law. So, you know, <laughs> it's just not my thing. It's not my bag. But I would so love to use some of these things. For example, I mean, you know, the Space Marines existed in the Horus Heresy and they exist in the 40,000s. But there's a small group on the Imperium side called the Sisters of Silence. Won't go into them. They only have one dedicated vehicle to them, but it's only got rules for Horus Heresy. It's a cool little sleek black ship. And I bought one. And they're a joy to put together and to paint. But I can't use it. It's, it's just purely there for decorative purposes. So anyway, that's like my little moan over and done with. So, yes, by the time you get to the 41st millennium and all the space marines fighting the evil orcs and everybody else, you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's about as cutting edge as it's going to get. But no, they're sort of sitting on this sort of crumbling edifice of half-remembered ideas. And a good example of this is I I've mentioned before, the space marines are these genetically enhanced super warriors who are encased in ceramite armor, their power armor. And that makes them even faster, even stronger stronger and even more resistance to damage. Great. You think, well, that's the ultimate 
But no, there is even better armor called Terminator armor. The Terminator's an infiltration unit, part man, part machine. And there are three basic types of Terminator armor. Basically, it is heavier, it is thicker, and it allows them to carry even heavier weapons with them as well. It makes them, in essence, a walking tank in Terminator armor. And there is the Indomitus Terminator armor, which is the kind of rounded Terminator armor. It's very hard to describe stuff on a podcast, but it's, if you like, the very first type of Terminator armor they ever came up with. And then, basically, they wanted to create other cool versions. So then there's the Cataphracty and also the Tartarus. And things like the Tartarus armor is almost exclusively in the Horus Heresy. But even in, with the case of the most common type, the Indomitus type of Terminator armor, bear with me on this, I'm getting to a point. Nobody knows how to make it anymore. These suits of armor are incredibly valuable. They might be able to fix minor damage to them, but a fundamental overhaul and rebuild is beyond the technology of Warhammer 40,000. So these suits of armor are relics from a different, more technologically advanced age, which is a wonderful idea. It means that they're covered in banners and they're, they're given many unctions and ointments and prayers are prayed around this armor to make sure it, it just stays in one piece. And you'd think that something that sort of important, well, you shouldn't be sending it off to battle, but it does a better job than anything else they've got. It's one of these things which is cherished. And, you know, the argument is who's more important, the, the super soldier inside with his decades of experience. You know, you basically a lot of these space marines can be literally centuries old. They are very expensive to maintain and to keep. And yes, you want to make sure that they stay alive. But that armor in argument is almost maybe even more important than the, the man inside it. It's a wonderful idea. And this is one of the things I love about Warhammer. It's, it's got this multi-layered fun stuff on top of it. So yeah, you've got the Terminator armor firing away. One of the classic areas it was used is in this separate board game called Space Hulk, which was very similar to the movie Aliens, where basically you've got maybe five Terminators. You don't have many of them, but boy, can they cause a lot of damage. And then you've got literally moving these blips around these corridors. And when the blip comes into view, you get to know whether it's one, two or three aliens called gene stealers, which are quite similar to the alien xenomorph. But let's not get too far on this. I think that there's been some legalities going backwards and forwards on that one over the years. So I'm not getting into the middle of it. But the game itself was a lot of fun. There are several different video game versions of it. And yeah, it, it just shows you the sheer power of the Terminators, but, you know, the Terminators are not invulnerable either. So there are all these different elements, different tanks, different types of armor, different types of guns, these massive giant walkers called Titans. All these sorts of things were actually created 10,000 years earlier, and some of it they kind of know how to repair and rebuild, and some of it they don't. And when an entire planet is captured by an alien race or, or by chaos, the, the baddies in the Horus Heresy, you can lose key bits of technology. Some of these Forge Worlds, which is also what the sister company to Games Workshop is known as as well. It's quite a clever idea. What these Forge Worlds, full of all those Admech tech priests. Yes, remember them? See, it all comes together now. You know, they have specialities. This particular Forge World is renowned for its plasma weapons. This one over here is particularly well known for its tracked vehicles. So yeah, other people know how to make them, but maybe not quite as good as 
ex-forge world so when it falls to the orcs then you know you could lose that technology forever and indeed there are many quests as people desperately try and find some of these sort of like hidden technologies there's one book where they find a piece of technology lost for millennia and it turns i'm not making this up it's quite a good gag you know this epic adventure lots of fighting and it turns out that they basically got the forgotten blueprints of a toaster so now in warhammer 40,000 they're able to toast their bread love it so that if you like is what's going on in warhammer 40,000 this idea of sort of like forgotten technology and people being very strange about it as i say lots of purity seals you'll, you'll get this a lot what's a purity seal basically it's a wax stamp and a piece of paper hanging off it you do see things they're not called purity seals but you do see things like that on medieval manuscripts and therefore to have it hanging off the side of a tank or off high-tech weaponry it's something that you're only going to see in warhammer 40,000, and that's one of the things that just makes it so great but at the same time it's kind of like you you and i both know that purity seal isn't actually doing anything but to them, it's as important as doing an MOT for your car, doing some maintenance on whatever it may be, an engine, and so on and so forth. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, this is all very silly. Yes, it's a silly song for anyone to sing. And, and yes, there's an element of sort of the absurd to it. As always, it is worth remembering that Warhammer 40,000 and Warhammer as a whole is kind of a parody of other things. As I said before, it sort of shows you how bad humanity can be. There are elements of things like Stalinist Russia and Hitler's Germany and things like that. It, you know, it shows you how the complete callousness to the loss of human life, which has happened in history and so on and so forth. And, and so, yeah, th th this is, if you like, this is the thing, because sometimes their artwork and sometimes their articles and, and their law, L-O-R-E again, is so po-faced, you might think it's all to be taken seriously. But whenever you look at the things like the marketing or indeed their Twitter channel and things like that, you realize that, you know, the tongue is firmly in cheek. And when you listen to interviews with some of the designers, they talk about, you know, Ultimately, this is a game about pushing little plastic space warriors around a table. They're having fun with it, but other people just think, no, 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 you know, the ultramarines are super serious, so we must be super serious like the ultramarines. No, no, please don't do that. So, yeah, you know, th there's a sense of humor, and I think they could do a little better job with it. They did a much better job of that in the 1980s, where they would literally have some people's names would just, like, play on words and things like that. And so you, you can tell that there's some fun going on, but certainly all the endless books coming from the Black Library, almost none of them are funny. You know, they're all very much, gird your loins, fight the Xenos, charge your plasma bolters. Uh, bolters, sorry, plasma bolter, I'll get in big trouble, that plasma guns. Yes, bolters fire basically grenades at people. Sorry about that. Oof, you, I could almost hear the internet twitching there. So anyway, yes, yeah, so, you know, it's having fun with it, but at the same time, we are like that. What do I mean by that? Well, there are a number of examples in history where we've forgotten the tech. And it's a fascinating topic as well, because 
Sometimes these things were carefully guarded secrets. Sometimes we just don't have the documentation about it. And I just find it all fascinating. And going back to an iPhone, we have the technology today to build an iPhone, but you need a certain amount of people doing a certain amount of things to produce an iPhone. So you might be listening to this and you might be, let's say, capable of programming a computer. You could build a basic app. So in theory, you could build the operating system of a smartphone. Good for you, but I bet you don't know how to physically build the motherboard and the computer chips inside it. That's a completely different job. Now let's say that you do know how to build an iPhone, but do you know how to extract the various different precious metals in Africa from the mining processes? Do you know exactly, you may know how to build a microchip, but do you know how to extract the ore in Uganda let's say, that creates the base metals that are needed in the microchip. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you can suddenly see you need to basically be an expert in mining extraction. You need to be an expert in electrical engineering. You need to be an expert in digital programming. And only then will you get an iPhone. 
and each type of person who can do those things are numbered probably in the thousands. So if there was, I don't know, a deadly virus that spread around the world and started killing people in their millions, or a nuclear war, or global catastrophe with typhoons and rising water levels, you could start losing some of that supply chain. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And you can also start losing the people who actually know how to do it. So you can see that we are quite precarious when it comes to our technology. And when you think about it, you know, our technology really has ramped up in the last 200 years. Really, if you think about the world from, I'm going to arbitrarily say, from the year 800 to the year 1800, was there some innovation? Well, probably gunpowder was an important one in that thousand years. What else you got? If you think about your average peasant in, let's say, England in the year 800, well, England hadn't actually been invented then. I guess that was a political concept. But really, their life from 800 to 1800 had barely changed. Almost nothing really had affected their day-to-day -day life. And yet, if you go from 1800 to today, you can see how, well, for starters, one of the things about industrialization is it means the majority of your population lives in an urban setting, which up until industrialization was not the norm around the world. You know, when you look at how industrialized somewhere like Japan is or America is or you know, Britain, France, Germany, you know, pick a place. They simply weren't like that 500 years ago. The vast majority of people lived in tiny little towns and hamlets and almost everybody tilled the soil. That's what your ancestors are more than likely to have done at some point. You know, even if you have royal blood in you, you track that royal family back far enough, they weren't royal at some point. They might have been landowners, but then you track them back further than that and they were basically at some point the biggest farmer in the area who worked out that if they punched people in the faces, they could get everybody else to farm for them. It's pretty much how most aristocracies start, by the way. That's, that's the basic theory. Nobody was there with a camcorder to record it, but that seems to be the logical processes. But anyway, huge innovation in the last 200 years. Somebody worked out, I thought this was quite clever, it was 75 years to the year from the time the Wright brothers took off and the first space shuttle landed. That's one small step for man. Yeah, 75 years between basically two brothers from a bicycle repair shop. I'm not making that up. That's what the Wright brothers did for a living to a, a vehicle that could fly into space, orbit the planet and fly back down to, to planet Earth. That, that is amazing in terms of technological achievement. But as people have said, the space shuttle will have more components in it than any other machine we ever build. It's basically too complex. That's one of the reasons why, sadly, two of them actually failed. Because what you want to do is have as much simplicity as possible. So I find that fascinating. Anyway, so 75 years we go from bicycle repair guys in their spare time trying to come up with heavier than air flight and then we get a spaceship within 75 years time. So with all of that in mind, you can see that technology sort of ebbs and flows a little bit. And I want to come to, I teed this up at the beginning, I want to come to the oldest story we have. Now, the oldest written story is about four and a half thousand years old, give or take. It's the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is a story, a very ancient one, from Earth, Gilgamesh. 
we have that written down. What this one is, is something that's in folklore. Now, if it's not written down, how do we know it's 6,000 years old? Because it's, it's spread throughout lots of different languages which didn't necessarily interact with each other. And so the language and the phrasing and the interaction of these languages thousands of years ago give us an indication. Again, it's not like somebody's got a a stopwatch and gone click. Yeah, it's definitely 6,000 years old, but it's old, older than the Epic of Gilgamesh. And basically you probably know a story like it. And because it's a story, there are lots of variations to it, but it's the story of the Smith and the devil. And what the basic story is, and blacksmith is, there he is sort of forging his metals and we get the devil appearing or an evil malevolent figure appearing. And basically a deal is struck between the smith and the devil, where basically when the smith dies, his soul will be given to the devil, but in return, the devil will make him the best smith in the world. I'd sell my soul for a donut. Well, that can be arranged. However, sometimes the devil gets what he wants. More often, what happens is the smith uses his new tools to trick the devil. And sometimes he gives him metal shoes that are uncomfortable and puts him in pain. So he has to sort of back out of the deal. Or other times he literally nails with using like iron or, or whatever types of metal nails, like nails the devil next to the forge so that he can't escape. And he's always got his eye on him, that kind of thing. But the point is around this is that the fact is that we've got this concept that somebody who forges metal can't have done it out of their own human brain. There has to be some divine inspiration to this. Again, going back to the Arthur C. Clarke quote, the innovation of being able to smelt metals is one of the things that started the technological trail for us. Being able to get these ores these rocks basically heat them up and get metal out of them, which is so much better than stone and wood and bone. Those are the things we used before that and metals just better. Now, we all know about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, but to begin with, there was the Copper Age because we hadn't worked out how to mix copper with tin. That's what bronze is. And it bronze is better than copper. Well, they say that bronze will revolutionize the way we hunt together. Well, maybe, but I can't be doing with it. Horrid, shiny stuff. But to give you an idea, then obviously iron is stronger and last longer lasting than bronze. So each one of these is better and better. The first metal that we started mucking around with was gold because it melts much easier and it's much more malleable. But of course, there isn't very much of it out there. So gold happened first. Then we got copper, bronze, iron, and you know, everything else evolves from there. But can you imagine the first time you see a metal tool of some description? It would have been the shiniest thing you've ever seen, short of the sun or maybe the sea on a sunny day. It would have been imperceptible to, to magic, basically. And the improvements it made to your life would have been the night and day differences of having an iPhone or something like that. So you can see how that is a technology that's been incredibly important in shaping humanity since a very long time ago. Now, interestingly, I'm saying that the current thinking is that story about the Smith and the devil is about 6,000 years old. Well, 
metalworking started about six and a half thousand years ago. So it didn't take long to start having these stories round, round smiths. And indeed, to this day, we are aware of stories about magic swords and this idea, particularly when we think about Japan and the samurai and the katanas, that there's almost like mythical sword makers. Obviously, some men made swords better than others, but there are various myths and various stories about the abilities and sharpness of these blades, be it from the movie Highlander. I've had three wives. The last was Shikiko, a Japanese princess. Her father, Masamuni, a genius, made this for me in 593 BC. Or from 16th century novels from Japan. You know, this, this stuff is, is just out there. And to give you an idea, there is another link to this. Because, as I said, we go to the medieval Middle East. We get something called Damascus steel. Now... The last time I talked about Damascus Steel online on my Facebook page, I got a lot of, hmm, how can I put it politely? I got a lot of help from people who clearly weren't historians. So let me explain. What's the difference between iron and steel? Iron is very good. As I just said, so much better than bronze. It is harder. It lasts longer. You can get a sharper edge on it. There are all these advantages to iron over bronze, okay? But if you get a mix right, adding carbon to the iron, you get steel. Steel is not a different metal to iron. It's a compound of iron. And steel is everything I've just said about iron versus bronze, only we're now going from iron up to steel. Even harder, even longer lasting, even sharper, etc., etc. But it's very hard to do. Smelting of iron, the reason why that happened after the smelting of bronze and copper is because iron melts at an even higher temperature. So you're going to have to have better technology in your forges, in your furnaces. And then to get that carbon mix right, well, if you get too much in there, it just becomes brittle. And basically, it's actually now that kind of steel is now pig iron and it's just rubbish. It, it's it's not suitable for pretty much anything other than just making weights out of, which is not what you want to do after you spent all that effort trying to create it. Now, interestingly, the Romans did create steel, but they cheated. What they did is they threw a mixture of iron filings, so tiny little chips of iron, in with carbon, and they didn't know they were making steel. They basically just recognized that if they did it this way, they got better iron. So that's how they created steel. And we're not quite sure how they created Damascus steel. And this is the thing on the internet that drove me insane. People go, I think you'll find we're able to create Damascus steel today. You're right. Using modern forging techniques from the 20th and 21st century, we can create something that was happening in the Middle East a thousand years ago. They obviously didn't do it the same way with the same modern forges. That's the interesting thing. How did they do it? We don't know. But for about a thousand years, from roughly 800 AD to the very last bits of Damascus steel ever being produced, but by now it was very much the exception, was round about 1900. So it did last about a thousand years, but its high point was in the Middle Ages. It was definitely on the decline from round about 1700 onwards. And the theory is they were getting a lot of their iron ore 
out from places like Indonesia. And I, I know it shows you how the trade networks of the world are far more sophisticated than you'd think. And that basically, that ore had exactly the right levels of carbon impurities. And when you look at Damascus steel, it looks really cool. Because when I say steel blade, I know what's in your mind. You know, it's the sort of thing that you might have as a kitchen knife. And you'd be right, by the way. But Damascus steel doesn't look like that. It's covered in lots of little ripples of these imperfections. It looks almost like it's being stained in a river or something like that. It's, it's really weird, but it's those imperfections that turn it from being good steel to some of the best steel in the world. You know, only now with cutting edge technology, modern technology, are we able to reproduce something that's as good as and maybe slightly better than these people were creating a thousand years ago. That's the really mind blowing thing. Now, under a microscope, they've worked out that one of the reasons why it's so strong and why it's sort of so resistant is they, again, accidentally, they did not deliberately do this. They created basically carbon fiber nanotubelets in it, which is something that we've only been able to recently do deliberately for maybe 25 years. So before anybody starts going aliens, this, like the Roman thing, was a happy accident. All they knew is if they followed this routine and recipe, it was the best. They didn't know that they were creating microscopic carbon fiber nanotubelets in the blades, but they were purely by accident, but they were able to replicate the process, which is pretty amazing. But the myths around Damascus steel are such that, you know, there are things that we simply know don't work because of physics. The idea being you could throw basically a piece of silk in the air and swipe it with a sword made from Damascus steel and it would cut it in half. Well, it could if you put it down and just sort of like cut it but the idea is it's so super sharp it would cut it in mid-flow but that's basically the snagging of the fabric you'd never be able to cut all the way through it that's just impossible but it's the sort of thing that gets reported in relatively respectable chronicles so in other words you know up amongst the proper history and the you know this shah of persia did this thing we also hear oh and then they did a cool trick with some damascus steel which is like okay that bit's not true that's an exaggeration the rest of it's pretty good so that's damascus steel and i think i've said that enough times then but another example is greek fire Sometimes referred to as medieval napalm, this was created at the time when the Western Roman Empire had collapsed. And so the Eastern Roman Empire, which is what they called themselves, they considered themselves Roman to the time Constantinople fell in 1453. But what everybody else called the, the Byzantine Empire, which was kind of meant as an insult. Every time you use that Byzantine or Byzantine, you're actually saying something that denigrates them, which they wouldn't have been happy with. And they never refer to themselves that way. But they created this concoction, which they are able to pump out of some kind of hose and was particularly effective in naval warfare. I think you can work out why. And as I said, medieval napalm is the best comparison of it. It clearly had a petroleum base to it, but the key thing is it was able to burn on water, which again, modern napalm can do, but we do that with very clever chemistry sets in the modern world. And we know what 
chemistry is. Whereas in the 6th century AD, chemistry, alchemy, and natural philosophy, which is what they generally, nobody called it science then. It was just something that they managed to create. And funnily enough, because they recognized it was an incredibly powerful, potent weapon, they kept it as a secret and only used it sparingly. So sometimes you do see movies in like the West, not in the Byzantine Empire, where they say, bring out the Greek fire. Your fire of the Greeks. They didn't know how to make it. It was a closely guarded secret. Byzantium, or the Eastern Roman Empire, was not going to share it with anybody. We do know it saved Constantinople a couple of times when navies, Arab navies in particular, tried to capture the city and surround it on three sides with basically naval vessels, but were burnt in the Mediterranean. It's amazing stuff. And we can guess at what it, well, we know what it did. We can guess what must have been some of the components, but we have no idea exactly what the recipe is and how they even stumbled across it in the first place. There we go. That, that's something else. But the last thing I'm going to leave you with is the ancient Greeks. There were a number of things that they did. There were these sort of very clever kind of semi-clockwork clocks and sort of astrolabe type things. The very first steam engine, which basically involved a spherical ball over a fire, but would spin. The first steam engine is from ancient Greece. When you start saying things like that, it gets very tempting to go, oh, if only they'd continued with it as a concept, maybe we would have had steam power and locomotives at the time of William the Conqueror. Well, the point is we didn't. The point is, going back to the Warhammer thing, there was one clever person who worked out how to do this, and then they died. There's the famous situation where the Romans, during the, one of the Punic Wars, they accidentally kill Archimedes, and so we, we lose him and all his clever ideas, and some of the things during the siege when the Romans were attacking, he clearly did, like the big claw that pulled the ships out of the water. That was obviously a thing he managed to invent, but then there's also the idea of the mirrors that create basically a concentrated sunburst that could burn ships. That's been proven to be completely false, and all records of that are centuries after he actually died for the record. Record. But that's a famous example that most people have sort of heard of, of a genius person who could come up with lots of inventions, and when they died, kind of the ideas died with them. Although the Archimedes screw is still used in lots of agricultural examples, but that's uh, perhaps a slightly more boring practical side of technology. So it's interesting. Technology does get forgotten. And also, the other thing worth mentioning is, yes, the Greeks invented the steam engine, but it was a spinning ball. It was basically a party trick. Nobody had thought to, you know, add things like, a, in essence, a fan belt to it, a drive shaft to it, to get it to do something like, for example, run a mill or, or, or something like that. You know, the water mill has been around for centuries, but somebody had to invent that. And obviously you do need free flowing water for that to work. But that's an example of an early machine using water power to help you with a day-to-day -day farming type job. So technology is all around us. We take it utterly for granted. I mean, the miracle of a smartphone, but the moment you can't get a decent connection to the internet, we start swearing at them. I find that fascinating. The awe and wonder evaporates after we realize the batteries died um, and we realize we've been idiots. And so all of this is kind of shown and reinforced with the world of Warhammer in its, its own bizarre, fun, epic kind of way. But 
you know, this is one where I'd love to throw it out to you. Actually, just before I do, I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. You can always say hi to me. And please, please spread the love. If you could give us a review. We haven't had a review on, on Apple for months. It'd be great if somebody could at least put a review up. Thank you. Tell somebody about it. You know, spread the love, subscribe, you know, click all the buttons, but tell people about it. Retweet the stuff that I put on Twitter. That'd be great. But now that I've said those are the things I'd like you to do, I'd like you to do something else. Tell me about your favorite inventions or tell me about an invention. Ah, oh, Jem, this is one that we just don't know what happened with it. You know, do you know anything about that one? Would love to hear your sort of ancient inventions that just seem to have fizzled out, that don't exist anymore. So yeah, let me know, a bit of interactivity there. Thank you very much as always for listening and hopefully speak to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.